Amen. I love having the choir with us and them being able to share with us on a, a weekly basis, or actually it's more bi-weekly at this point, but we are very grateful for that. Uh, at this time, if we have any children that want to be dismissed to Children's Church, I see Miss Amy standing over uh, to the, my left, your right, and she would love to be able to work with your kids this morning. It is a blessing to have each of you with us. I, I will say there was one adjustment to the announcements that were given earlier. Uh, the men's group that meets this afternoon is actually not going to meet until two weeks from now, so the same week that the women's group will be starting up. So we're excited about both of those, uh, but that is uh, a health concern as well, so that's the reason for that change. It is a blessing to have each of you with us this morning, and I'd like to begin by just taking a moment and thanking Jerry Cade, who makes our announcements, but he's also the one who put together uh, yesterday's event at the March for Life, not the overall event. He actually only helped with our church, but uh, he shared with me yesterday that just a few years ago, they went down and there were only four from our church that went. And what a blessing it was to see 17 of us there yesterday to be able to celebrate. I will say it was very, very cold. It was very, very cold. So I'm asking Jerry to do a better job on the weather next time. Uh, we would all appreciate that. Uh, also, I want to take this as an opportunity to celebrate the fact that God is blessing our church. Last week, we were able to welcome a brand new baby in our second service. And this week, we had two more babies born to people in the church. Fortunately, not at the church, but they, they were actually at a hospital. But let me just say, I love your passion for church growth. You guys keep it up. I love seeing new people brought in. Last week, I began a new series focusing on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, specifically in chapters two and three, and I want to continue that series this morning. And as I begin today, I want to remind you that all of these letters are from God himself, and he is writing to the people of God. He's speaking specifically to seven actual churches that existed during the New Testament era. In fact, these churches were all in a relatively close proximity to each other, with many of them being referenced at other places in the New Testament, much like last week's study on the church of Ephesus that is actually referred to in the book of Acts, and then later Paul writes a letter to the Ephesian church. Yet just as these were actual churches that existed back then, in many ways, these seven churches reflect the church throughout the centuries and perhaps even today. And although we're looking at seven separate letters, they were compiled as one larger letter with the intent that all of the churches would be able to read what is being said to each individual church. In other words, the letter to Ephesus that we read last week was not some top secret message just intended for them. All of the seven churches would have access to all seven of the letters, and they would be able to read what was being said to others. Now, the purpose of that is simple, and it's really important as we read these letters. While the Ephesian church may be the only one that had lost their first love out of those original seven, the capacity exists within each of us to fall into the very same traps that others have fallen into. Therefore, 
we are to read their letters with the intent of us learning from their mistakes. It's almost like you see your, your, your brother. I have a twin. There were many things growing up that I didn't have to make dumb mistakes because I watched him do it first. I remember on one occasion, my mom tells us that she, had, she looked out the front window and we lived in a two-story apartment and she looked out the front window and there are all these people in the front yard and they're looking up. And when she came outside, she discovered that my brother had actually crawled out. There was a little roof over the front porch and he had crawled out the window and he was out on the, the roof and couldn't get down. And there I am inside the window just laughing because I'm having a good time. I didn't have to learn by making my own mistakes. I could learn from other people. Well, as we read these seven letters of the seven churches, there is not just a message for them, but there's a message for us. If we can learn from where they struggled, we'll be better off. So I told you already, I mentioned it last week, but this is God's message to God's people. In fact, each letter begins with a descriptive term identifying that it's Jesus who is speaking. In fact, if you really want to get technical, each of the titles that are used in these seven letters come from Revelation chapter 1. And each title appears to be intentionally chosen for that specific church. For example, we're about to read the letter to the church of Smyrna. And I want you to notice how encouraging this descriptive term for Jesus would have been for them. As you'll see, they are facing impending death, and Jesus is referred to as the one who has died and come back to life. So in other words, these are not random descriptions. Now generally, we'll see a pattern within these seven letters. I told you last week I'd at least look at the form of these letters a little bit this morning. You see a pattern within each of these seven letters. Upon noting the author being Jesus and the intended audience, whichever of the seven churches was initially to receive the letter, the letters tend to start with some sort of encouragement. You're really good at this. Keep up the good work. You're doing a good job. And then some type of rebuke. Typically, you'd see the phrase, nevertheless, or but this I have against you. In other words, we've looked at all the good stuff that's going on. Man, you're doing a great job, but nevertheless, I got something I need to talk about. But there are expectation, exceptions for every rule. In fact, today's letter is one of those exceptions to the rule. You keep waiting for the nevertheless, but it never comes. Apparently, there is no reason for rebuke in our letter today. Look at it with me. This is in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 8 through 11. It's a relatively short passage, but it's important. This is what it says beginning in verse 8, and I'm reading from the ESV this morning. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, 
and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So I don't know if you noticed this or not, but there is absolutely zero rebuke in this letter. This is apparently a good church that seems to be doing exactly what they have been called to do. Man, I bet they were super blessed because of that. I mean, I imagine that they basically got whatever they asked God for. I mean, if they're doing what God wants them to do, they're probably getting blessing after blessing after blessing. Doesn't that sound about right? Well, actually, if we read this passage, what we see is that in spite of their faithfulness to God, they still had an awful lot of problems. Let me just say that this flies in the face of those who would proclaim what's called the prosperity gospel. I've had good, godly people who have told me that God will bless you if you are faithful to him. And there are many biblical examples of people who demonstrate this, so I know where they're coming from. Just to give you one example, think of Naaman. He was a commander of the Syrian army, and his story is described in 2 Kings chapter 5. He comes to Elisha looking for healing for a terrible skin disease. And all he has to do to receive God's blessing is to be obedient to Elisha. As Elisha instructs him to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. Well, he reluctantly obeys and God does bless him. And the point of that story was that anything but obedience would not have led to blessing and healing. But obedience to God does lead to blessing. Well, I suggest to you today that God does want to bless you. However, I also need you to know that God's blessing does not always mean that life will be easy or fun. Back at the beginning of October, my world actually began to go crazy. I was at the church when I received a phone call from my oldest son, Andrew, the one who normally plays the drums up here, and he also lives in my basement. He said that when he got out of bed that morning, I think it was about 11 o'clock, because that's what time young adults get out of bed, I don't know. He said when he got out of bed, he was greeted with water on the floor. Unfortunately, it wasn't just at his bedside, but rather it was everywhere. To make matters worse, it wasn't just water. Apparently, my septic tank had backed up, and it was everywhere in the house. This would be the beginning of a very difficult process for our family. Since then, we have spent over $20,000 on a septic tank removal and replacement, as well as installing a new drain field in my front yard. In addition, we had one plumber who dealt with us dishonestly. We lived in a hotel for several weeks, and since returning to the house, we have had to deal with the occasional smell of sewage while everything was being fixed. The end result will be an additional $100,000 complete remodel of our basement. I am glad to say that the insurance company is covering a very large portion of that. 
I'm also glad to say that my son has now been able to move back into the basement, although the project is still not completed. Add to all of that the fact that my truck has been out of commission for nearly a month, and by the time I get it back, hopefully this coming week, I will have spent over $8,000 on repair. And don't forget my son's most recent experience of trying to find out why the coyote crossed the road, where the coyote died but also completely ripped off the front end of my son's vehicle. Now, I share all of that not as a complaint. In fact, Pastor Lee and I were talking about this recently. Honestly, I look at a lot of this stuff in in a way that says, you know what, there's something positive that can come out of all of this. For example, although it has been a pain, my basement will look amazing when it's done. And I am very grateful for that. But after a while, you start to wonder, Will it ever end? Then I look around and I see what other people are going through. I think of Alan who's been in the hospital for almost a month now. And I think about what he's facing and suddenly my issues really don't seem all that big. And I look at the brokenness that others have had to deal with, some who have lost loved ones over the last year or two. And my problems aren't really as big as I seem to make them out to be. But there's something else that I have wondered through all of this. I know that I've been serving the Lord for a very long time, but the thought that hit me was, what are you trying to teach me, Lord, in all of this? I've wondered if there's a lesson in all of this for me, or if perhaps God is trying to correct some area of unrecognized sin in my life. I assume that everyone knows what I mean when I use the word karma. I'm kind of hesitant to use that word because it actually comes from a Middle Eastern religion. And in the Middle Eastern religion, it has to do with people being rewarded or punished according to what they have done in a previous life. Well, in today's culture, however, it is simply the idea of people getting what they deserve. If they're doing good, then they will be rewarded with good things. If they're doing evil, then they'll be punished with not so good things. I confess that as we were recently dealing with the dishonest plumber, I prayed that God would either bless him or curse him based on how he treated our family. There's a sense of wanting people to get what they deserve. Well, as things seemed to be falling apart around us, I began to wonder if this was somehow even what we deserved. I think of David who watched a son die because of his sexual immorality with Bathsheba. Later on, by the way, David would watch as he wasn't a very good godly father. He would watch as one of his sons apparently had raped his own daughter, Tamar. And then another son would come and take vengeance, killing the first son. Can you imagine the brokenness that David experienced? And much of it probably recognizing that it was his own sin that might have brought some of that on. I think of Sarah. I think of Hannah. Two ladies who longed for children in their youth, yet they were unable to bear children until much later in life. 
And their inability to bear children would have been viewed by the people as God's judgment upon them. Perhaps because they had done something ungodly, because God did not want to bless them. Do you remember the woman who fed Elijah during a time of great famine? After faithfully helping Elijah, her son died and she cried out, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, not to take that story out of context, Elijah would then become God's tool to raise that child from the dead. But the brokenness that she experienced, she immediately connected with her sin. It was as if somehow she deserved the punishment that she was receiving. Well, today's passage suggests that Hardship and suffering is not always connected to whether you are good or godly. You can faithfully serve the Lord and experience great prosperity. Or you can faithfully serve the Lord and experience great tribulation. Now there may be times that God will teach us through this hardship. and There may be times that God will use those difficulties to bring us into something even better. But don't be fooled into believing that being good or godly somehow guarantees that everything will be easy and good in your life. It's not what the scriptures teach. I was reading this past month about some of the greatest examples of this in scripture. Four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All four had purposed in their hearts that they would be faithful in all things to the Lord. And as a result, they saw times of great blessing. They were literally kidnapped as children and taken to serve in a Babylonian empire. They would become some of the most influential people in the kingdom. Daniel basically becomes an ambassador. He becomes a leader, a governor among the people. That's a man who was blessed, but he was taken away from his family as well. And they saw incredible times of tribulation and distress. Both the good and the bad connected to their obedience to the Lord. In other words, the prosperity gospel that many present is a lie. But there's good news. Even before we get into what their suffering will look like, the good news is in knowing that God is faithful even in the suffering. For Daniel, God was with him in the lion's den. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God was with them in the fiery furnace. And for the church at Smyrna, God would be with them even as they faced death. In verse 9, it begins with, I know your tribulation. This is God's affirmation that you are not alone. I'm not oblivious to the pain and the suffering that you're going through. I know you've had some really dark days, but you are not in this alone. I'm watching you. I see what is happening, and I will be with you throughout it. And for sure... That ought to serve as a word of encouragement to us as too. See, the reality is all of us deal with hardship and difficulty. 
It will look different for you as opposed to you as opposed to you. But in the midst of whatever difficulty and tribulation you may face, God is faithful. And he sees your pain. And he sees the struggle that you're dealing with. And he will be faithful to walk with you throughout. Let's talk about the tribulation which Smyrna would face. Verse 10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death. And it goes on and adds a little bit more. We'll look at that in just a moment. Historically speaking, Smyrna was viewed as one of the principal cities of Roman Asia, vying with Ephesus and Pergamum for the title first city of Asia. What that tells you is they were pretty important. This was a big city. This was a prosperous city. And it suggests that as they had their notoriety, there were many people who did very well because of it. But a lower class of people like the Jews and Christians typically would not have benefited from the prosperity that Smyrna experienced. But a big part of Smyrna's problem was not economics. It was something else that was very much internal. They faced much persecution from those who would call themselves Jews. And remember that the early church was made up of Gentile-believing Christians. So they were raised as Gentiles and really knew very little or maybe even nothing about the Jewish faith. Or you had Jewish-believing Christians, individuals who, man, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been looking for, but they also knew that there was a law that had to be kept. Smyrna is one of the most significant cities of early Christian persecution in history. And it wasn't persecution from outside but rather from within. In fact, one of the second century church fathers was a guy named Polycarp, who was martyred by the Jews in Smyrna in 153 AD. You can trust that he was not alone. You see, what was happening was there was such abuse among the people upon each other. They killed each other. The phrase that is used to describe these ones betraying Jews from Smyrna, these ones who were betraying Jews from Smyrna, is pretty harsh. They're actually called the synagogue of Satan. Yet they likely saw themselves as keepers of the law. They were calling people to traditional Jewish purity, perhaps not all that different from the apostle Paul before his conversion experience. He wasn't setting out to destroy the Christian faith so much as he wanted to keep the Jewish faith pure. He wanted people to keep everything that their Jewish fathers had taught. Or maybe they weren't so severe that they were having people arrested and killed, although we do know that that was part of the story. Some have suggested that they were more like the early Christian Jewish fathers who in Acts sought to force Gentiles who came to Christ to also come under the entire law of Moses, even including circumcision, making it nearly impossible for a Gentile to convert to Christianity. 
The point is that regardless of what they were doing, they were referred to as a synagogue of Satan. That was not intended as a compliment in any way because they stood in the way of the Lord's work. I pray constantly that we would be a holy church, the holy church that God has called us to be, but also that we would not unintentionally become a synagogue of Satan, unknowingly standing in the way of others coming to Jesus. And I regret to inform you that churches all across America have done that for a very long time. Sometimes it's because of legalism. Sometimes it's because we're just focused on our own thoughts and ideas, and we're not really worried about what's happening in the world around us. There are all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's because we've fallen short. We've simply not lived the way that we're supposed to. And I don't want to be anybody who might stand in the way of people coming to Christ. So let's call the body, the church body, to be holy, to live up to a standard that brings honor to the Lord. But let's never forget that God's grace is what makes even us right with him. Now, we've talked about the suffering that the Smyrna church experienced in spite of their faithfulness to God. And there's a part of me that says that this is somewhat of an ugly story. I mean, when you really think about it, you almost picture these people deciding to follow Jesus with the idea that this is going to be great and the Lord's going to bless us and it's going to be a really good time in our lives, only to find out that it wasn't so easy and rewarding as they had hoped it would be. It makes you wonder how many of them turned back, going back to their old way of life. How many of them did not remain faithful? The story is told of the great explorer Cortez, who took 11 ships to the New World, landing in the area of the Aztecs. As they prepared to go inland and face this New World, he ordered his men to strip all of the ships of all the metal and anything of value. Then he instructed them to burn the ships. He was cutting off any possibility of retreat. It's not all that different from Elisha, who agreed to follow the last great prophet Elijah before him and become the next prophet of God. In his case, he burned his plow and he cooked the oxen that he used for his family business. He was cutting off any possibility of going back to his old life. And I believe that God is calling his people to go in with all obedience. Be so devoted to the Lord's work whether you receive incredible earthly rewards or you receive nothing, your decision has already been made. There is no going back. I can't be where I was before. There's a song that I learned many years ago that says, I will never be the same again. I can never return. I've closed the door. I will walk the path. I will run the race and I will never be the same again. I pray that this would be the song of each of our hearts this morning. The church of Smyrna went into this new belief, this new trust, this new faith that they had in Jesus Christ. I wonder if some of them considered going back. According to the passage, Jesus is calling them to stay faithful. While we may not be guaranteed blessings in this life, 
we are guaranteed an eventual reward. The end of verse 10 says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And then at the end of verse 11, it says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So as those who are faithful and overcome, they actually are promised two things. This is completely irrelevant to the struggling and the tribulation that they've already faced. They are promised that if you overcome, if you are faithful, even to the point of death, there is something that awaits you, the crown of life and the promise that you will not be hurt by the second death. Let me suggest to you today that I would rather walk in complete poverty for all the days of my life and receive the crown of life as opposed to being the wealthiest man in the world, yet not inheriting the kingdom of God. Far too many of us have entered into this faith in Jesus Christ with the expectation that God will bless us and give us more than we could ever imagine in this life. And if we don't get exactly that, well, I'm not sure I'm going to keep following. But do you know that God's promise of blessing is not just for this life? It is for what is to come. There will come a day when all of us will stand in the presence of God And for those of us who have placed our faith and our trust in him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will welcome us in and we will receive the greatest reward you could ever imagine. If you were the wealthiest person in the whole state of South Carolina, man, it's going to feel good and you're going to enjoy it in this life. But I want you to understand something. When the day comes that you come into the presence of God, if you have surrendered your life to him, all the wealth that you had in this life will pale in comparison to how good it will be to be in the presence of God. That's the reward that he offers to us. For the people of Smyrna, they struggled. They had tribulation. I'm not sure if we'll ever experience tribulation the way that they did. I hope not. However, I pray that regardless of what we face, that we will be faithful just as they were being called to be faithful. I pray that God will bless you, but I pray more than that, that you will be faithful regardless of what you experience. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for the grace that you have given to us. Lord, every one of us here today knows that we are lost without you. Lord, as we have entered into a relationship with you, sometimes there are expectations for what that will bring, and they don't always measure up with what your word teaches. Or perhaps some of us here have expected an easy road. We've expected that everything would go exactly as we had planned. And Father, I pray today that you would help us not to find satisfaction in the things of this world, but rather to find satisfaction in what is to come. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to never stop doing the things that you've called us to do. Lord, may we hunger after you 
just as we talked about last week, as if that is the most important thing for us, regardless of what we face. If there's tribulation, if people turn their backs on us, if we have illnesses, whatever it may be that we face, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, fully devoted to you above all else. And regardless of what tomorrow may hold, Lord, help us today to determine that we will pursue you with everything we have. Father, I praise you for you are a good and gracious God. I don't want to leave out, Lord, I I am so grateful for the many, many ways that you have blessed me and my family. And I don't feel like I'm alone. Lord, you've been very, very good. You've been very, very generous. Help me to never take that for granted. But Lord, help me to not live just for those things. Help me to live for you. Father, I give you praise today. I pray that you have your way in each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is truly a blessing to have each of you with us today and to be able to celebrate what God is doing. He is still changing lives, he's still reaching the lost, and he is still meeting needs. And we celebrate that wholeheartedly. I pray that you will be blessed as you leave today and that you'll come back next week and look forward to hearing another letter to the church. Thank you. Go in peace.